Well, if you have your Bibles, if you'll open them to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, today uh, we're going to continue our series of messages, actually conclude our series of messages that we've been calling the Christmas Remix. And in this series, what we've been doing is we've been taking Christmas songs and tweaking the title just a little bit in order to bring out uh, a nuance or a thought about Christmas that perhaps we don't often look at. And so today, I'm taking what is really my uh, favorite Christmas carol, O Holy Night, and tweaking the title just a bit to Unholy Night. You know, the word holy is a very, very interesting word. It's used a lot in Christianity. We talk about the Holy Bible. Uh, We talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have holy days. In fact, the word holiday, if you break it down, that holla part of holiday, it's not the holly, it's the holy day. It's It's a holy day that has been set apart. In the Bible, there's even holy kisses in the Bible. I remember back way before I ever met Stacy. I didn't even know that she existed at this time. I was uh, in college, and I, I was sweet on this girl. And so I thought I would be really cute. And I, I sent her a note in class that said, uh, had a scripture verse on it. We were at Bible college. So she opened up the Bible and looked at the verse, and it said, Greet ye one another with a holy kiss. And so she looked back at me, and I was like, you know how you... So uh, she gets out her pen, and, and she writes down something on the paper and passes it back to me. Well, it's Colossians 2.21. So I'm like, okay, what, what, she, what does she have here on the, the verse? So I look it up. It says, touch not, taste not, handle not on Colossians 2.21. You got to look out for those Bible college girls, I tell you what. So, so uh, Thankfully, it didn't work out, and I wound up meeting Stacy a little bit later. But, you know, the word holy has three main ideas that it conveys. The first is that something is to be exalted, something is worthy of our complete devotion. And so whenever we say God is holy, He is exalted, we are to give Him the totality of ourselves in worship. Holy also means pure. And so in God's holiness, there is no stain, there is no corruption. He is altogether righteous. Aren't you glad that you do not worship a corrupt God? The word holiness also means to be set apart, to be singled out, to be removed from common use. Sometimes theologians use the word transcendence with holy meaning that it is beyond us. We are separated from it because it is holy. Well, I think the greatest example of holiness is Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus, who is completely holy, came to live among those who are not holy. In Philippians chapter 2, and beginning in verse 5, uh, we, see, we see these words. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Well, right there, that's a verse to be highlighted, right? Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Well, what was Jesus' attitude? Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. 
the first thing that we see here is that Jesus is exalted. As holy, he is exalted. He, is, he exists in the form of God. If you go back to John 1, the passage that we looked at not long ago, you, you remember that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But we also understand this about Jesus, that Jesus is completely pure. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5 says, You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins. And then John tells us this, And there is no sin in him. So Jesus is exalted. He is God. He is pure. And Jesus is also set apart. He is not uh, there in the creation. He is set apart from the creation. He is transcendent. He is with the Heavenly Father. And then he comes into the creation. This idea of transcendence or being set apart, it is actually a distinctive of our Christian faith. In New Age spirituality, which is very prevalent in our country today, particularly the further west you go, it becomes more and more prevalent within our country. In New Age spirituality, we are all God through our connectivity. And so in many ways, within uh, New Age thought, God becomes our common good, our, our corporate energy. And through good karma and, and having this uh, understanding of connectivity, that's how we connect with the greater being. Because we ourselves, as a collective unit within that thought, are God. In Eastern thought... We can become God whenever we are released from matter and or desire. And so essentially in Eastern religions, God is the energy of the universe. And the ultimate ultimate goal is that we can divorce ourselves from desire and matter and kind of become one with the universe and dissolve into a nirvana of spiritual existence. In the humanistic faith, Jesus is our Redeemer. He's an example. Because in many of the humanistic faiths, the ultimate goal is that we too can become a God like Jesus was. In the Islamic faith, God is set apart, similar to the Christian faith, but there's a large distinctive. God is set apart, and He is to be obeyed and to be feared, but in Islam, you never speak of God in terms of relationship. God is not understood in terms of love and fatherhood, But God is feared and obeyed in all ways. But in Christianity, our God is holy in every way. He is set apart from His creation, and yet at the same time, He relates to His creation. He loves His creation. We are not, nor will we ever be, God. He is set apart. At the same time, as Christians, God is more than spirit. He's more than energy. He is a relational being. 
even seen in the incarnation of His Son. God is all-powerful. He is to be obeyed. His wrath is to be feared. He is just. He is altogether sovereign in His punishment of sin. But He is also loving. He's graceful. He's redeeming. And the Scriptures teach us that God made a divine choice. God made a choice to bridge the gulf of sin between us and Him when He sent His Son, and His Son took on flesh, took on sin, took on death, and He overcame them all. So that the transcendent God might be known. So that we might be called His children, and know Him, and love Him, and relate with Him. Verse 7, in talking about Jesus, said, Instead, He emptied Himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. So here's Jesus, existing with the Father. He is highly exalted, and yet he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he empties himself, and he assumes the likeness of a, the form of a slave, the likeness of men. You ever seen that television show, Undercover Boss? You ever seen that? Well, the whole premise of the show is they take a top executive, somebody that has climbed to the very top of the uh, company, and then they disguise the executive, and they have him or her enter into an entry-level job within the company in order to see, uh, see how the company is working from the bottom. And, it, and that's the premise is, is that here's this exalted executive who disguises himself and comes down to the lowliest of positions. Now, obviously, the illustration breaks down, but uh, I see Jesus as, as God, and, and he's in the heavens, and he's in no way lacking, and then he takes on the, the likeness of men, and he, he goes all the way down to the form of a slave. He doesn't come into the royal palace. His birthing room is a stable. He's born into a family who was under Roman oppression. They were slaves to Rome. What this is, is the incarnation. Don't worry, they're not bowling. Evidently, somebody's moving furniture upstairs. Uh, uh, What this is, is it's the incarnation. And let's have a, a Christmas word moment with last year, because sometimes we throw out these Christmas words, and a lot of times they're they're fairly technical theological words, and we never really take the time just to explain it. When we talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you break that word down and you have the word carnal. You've heard of the word carnal. That's carnal behavior. It comes from the idea that you're behaving in a fleshly, sinful way. And so that word carnation or carnal is the flesh. And so whenever you have incarnation, you have God in flesh. Jesus is fully God in his essence and fully man in his body. He is the God-man. Again, the, the theological term for that 
is the hypostatic union of Christ. He is fully God and he is fully man. He is the God man. Now make sure that you don't turn that around and say, well, Jesus is the man God. Because in our understanding of theology, man can never become God, but God became man. And there's a distinction there. Jesus empties himself and takes on the likeness of men. Now at the end of verse 7, the Bible says, And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. Now notice there in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Instead of heaven, Jesus took on earth. Instead of freedom, Jesus took on bondage. Instead of pride, Jesus took on humility. Instead of rebellion, Jesus took on obedience. And now let me ask you, where did all this humility, where did all this self-sacrifice, where did all this obedience get him? He was killed in the most painful way imaginable. You can walk on water and you can heal the blind and there will still be some people out there that want to crucify you. And one of the most one of the biggest misgivings of Christmas is that God is a jolly old man watching down on us from his heavenly toy store summoning his pointed-winged angels to bring us Hot Wheels, Barbies and iPhones when we are good. And flat tires, love handles, and flip phones when we are bad. Your obedience to God does not earn you His love. Your obedience to God is born through His love, which was born for you. And the Christian community has got to get this. In obeying Christ the dearly loved Son, the Holy One of the universe, the humble servant, was a suffering servant. Taking on the likeness of Christ does not make you a Toys R Us kid. It makes you a child of God like Christ. And it may lead you to points of suffering and hardship yourself. Joseph obeyed God, and he wound up being sold into slavery, accused of rape, thrown in jail. David obeyed God, and he found himself running for his life from a maniac king. Ruth obeyed God, and she found herself widowed as a young woman, leaving her home, starting her life over again. Esther obeyed God. And it took her to the brink of mass genocide. Obedience to God does not separate you from the hurts of an unholy world. But obedience to God connects you to the holy purposes of God 
in restoring His world. Now the story gets brighter in verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted Him. You see, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there was a destination for the incarnation. Death, birth, and death had a purpose in mind. The birth and death of Jesus were leading to the cross and the resurrection. There was an exaltation and a revelation. God did not leave His Son in the manger, on the cross, or in the tomb. The humble one became the greatest one. And then there is an invitation to the congregation. The Scriptures call us to a simple confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. At the heart of our Christian heritage, at the heart of what Christmas is all about, is this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you ever made that confession in your own life? That salvation proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's an important statement. And it's important that you understand the various words of the statement. Jesus Christ. Christ being the anointed one. The one that God chose. That Jesus is God's plan for this. You may have a plan for how you would redeem the world, but your plan and God's plan, they may differ. Well, whatever plans you have, they must bow to God's plans. Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, He is Lord. It's important that you understand that Jesus is Lord and that you don't put anything else in that position that belongs to Jesus. Covey's my friend over here. Covey's a good guy. I like Covey. Covey's one of those guys that I would trust uh, to, to, well, I'd trust Sherry to watch my kids, but I, 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 would, uh, I would, you know, Covey's a good, good man. But if I put Covey in that place and say, Covey is Lord, I've messed up. I mean, Covey, you're a great guy, but you'd make a horrible Lord, you know? You, know, you can't put anybody else or anything else in that slot. If you do, you mess the whole thing up. I love the fact that is is a present tense word. Okay, don't think too much about what is is. <laughs> is is a present tense word. The next service will be like, huh? I don't get that. Yeah. Okay. Jesus is Lord. If he had died on the cross and remained in the tomb, we could say Jesus was Lord, but he died. But because he rose again, he is Lord. He is Lord for all eternity. 
And Jesus Christ is not just a man who died as an example. He is the Lord. That word having its roots in Christ eternal, eternal, in the eternal nature of Christ. That He is. He has always been. And He always will be. He is the absolute reality. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the mightiest of the mighty. He is sovereign. Jesus Christ is Lord, is the confession of the Christian believer. This Thursday, we celebrate Christmas. And this Christmas can be a day of joy, peace, and goodwill. Or it can be a day of misery, fighting, and selfishness. I would guess that most people's celebrations of Christmas, it goes about 50-50 on this line. For some families, they have sweet, special days where there's a lot of joy and peace. And for a lot of other families, there's just a lot of misery, anger, fighting, and selfishness. A lot of times, the difference between joy and misery is a matter of perspective. Show that picture up here on the screen. I think you, you probably have seen this somewhere in the course of your life, but um, you got it up there, guys? There you go. What do you guys see? How many of you guys see an, an old woman whenever you, you look there? Okay. You can put your hands down. How many of you guys see a young woman whenever you look? Okay. Now, if you look carefully, both an old woman and a young woman are in the same picture. It really depends upon where you put the chin. If you see the chin down here at the bottom, you're going to see an older woman. But if you see the chin up here, kind of at the top of the the black, then you see a younger woman, kind of an old English uh, Victorian woman. You see it now? Kind of coming together? Yeah, same picture. It's just a matter of perspective. And a lot of times, the difference between having a Merry Christmas And having a miserable Christmas is just a matter of perspective. How are you looking at it? How are you approaching it? How are you going into this Christmas season? And so here's what I want to do as we finish out this sermon today. I want to take the bookends of this passage that we've looked at today, the first five verses of Philippians chapter 2, and then we'll look at verses 12 through 18 in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to give you seven things, identify seven things here from the Word of God that can help us have a perspective that will lead to a merry celebration of Christmas. Chapter 2, verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ... If any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. And here's the first one. Fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. You want to have a Merry Christmas? Read verse 2. Well, here's a second thing you can do. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. 
Gary, you got that new Bible? Now it's time to use the highlight funk feature right there. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Here's the third thing you can do. Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus. Have an attitude of Christ-likeness. So then, my dear friends, and we go down to verse 12 now. Just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence. And here's a fourth thing. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out His good purpose. We need to take the salvation that God has blessed us with and work it outwards. Let it be demonstrated in our lives because God is working in you and He is leading you to desire differently and to work for His own purposes. A fifth thing in verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Can I get a hallelujah from the choir there? Amen. All right. Do everything without arguing and grumbling so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. There is a lot of evil in the world in which we live. There are a lot of people who are constantly arguing and complaining. Cynicism is dripping from every word But the Scriptures remind us as believers, don't go there. Don't be grumbling. Don't be arguing all the time. Instead, have a pure spirit that allows you to shine like a star and you become contrast with the dark world in which we live. A sixth thing in verse 16. Hold firmly to the message of life. Hold firmly to the message of life that we have in Christ Jesus. The message of life that we see in the Scriptures. Don't get distracted by all the busyness, all the other stuff that goes along with Christmas. Hold firmly to the message of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also, and here's number seven, be glad and rejoice with me. Let's have a Merry Christmas this week. Amen? Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads? We come to a time of commitment.
In the next several days, there's going to be a lot of activity. A lot of things that still need to be crossed off of your to-do list. As a church, we'll be gathering for worship several more times in the coming days. As a church, we will try to comfort grieving families and try to be an encouragement to those that are in need. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, I want to encourage you this morning to have a Merry Christmas. Ask God to help you have an attitude of joy, an attitude of peace, an attitude of love. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. I thank you for these dear people that make up the Murphy Road Baptist Church. I pray your blessing upon them. I pray your blessing upon their families. Father, we think about the days ahead where some of us will be traveling, others will be entertaining guests. Families will be eating together and exchanging gifts and spending time with one another. I pray that it will truly be a season of joy. Pray, Father, that you'll give us wisdom, give us strength. Lord, sometimes we might find ourselves in some situations that are uncomfortable, but help us, Lord, to be godly. Help us, Lord, to shine like stars in the darkness. Help us, Lord, not to be full of grumbling or complaining. Instead, Lord, help us to have the attitude of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, so much that you didn't leave us in the darkness. That you are not a detached deity, but that the light shined into the darkness. And Father, we rejoice in the fact that the darkness did not overcome it. That you rose again and that you're coming again. And because of that, we celebrate that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the exalted one. And we bow our knee and we confess that He is Lord. And Father, we give You the gift of ourselves. We pray that You might take our lives and use it for Your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.